find our passage of Scripture today in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, uh, the fourth chapter. And as we just kind of dive into this passage, I think it's good for us to remember uh, that the book of Ephesians primarily is about the church and about the importance of the church and how we in the church are to live. And so we need to keep that in mind as we look at this uh, passage together where Paul is talking about uh, the new life. Ephesians 4, I hope you found your bulletin insert. We'll use this as a unison reading together, beginning to read at verse 17 and reading through verse 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Well, I guess that you don't need me to tell you that election time is upon us with practically every television commercial these days being some candidate, and I would guess that 95% of the time it's a commercial for Kay Hagan or Tom Tillis. And we don't even get to vote for them, and yet we're stuck with their advertisements. But of course, the yard signs are proliferating, as are the newspaper editorials, all of that and more converging together to tell us something important is about to happen on Tuesday, and it is an important day, and it's our Christian duty to vote, and I hope you will do that. Now, if I should ask you where the majority of American voters live today, if I give you a multiple-choice question between rural America or American cities or American suburbs, what would your answer be? If you guessed the suburbs, you would be right. This changed in this nation somewhere around the late 80s or early 90s because ever since industrialization at the turn of the 20th century had tipped the scales, the majority of American voters were in the cities. And so politicians always talked about city issues. But now in the last 25 years, the suburbs have become the key turf in American politics. And that's why in major elections you tend to hear all sorts of suburban issues discussed, from the education of children to ecological problems to planned development to taxes and more. 
with some national elections, you would almost guess that the cities are no longer of concern with all of the silence concerning some of their issues. And yet we know that some of our greatest gifts and resources are found within our cities, but also some of our greatest challenges as a nation. Whether it's poverty and welfare dependence or crime, low job growth, inferior schools, homelessness, and on and on we could go. Those challenges are part of city life. And not just in New York, Chicago, or L.A., or not even just Charlotte, but in cities like Rock Hill and Gastonia and Statesville and Chester, right in this community of which we're a part because we are a city church. And we know there are homeless people here, especially those of us who volunteer with the Family Promise Ministry in the life of this church. We know there are poor people. We know about the illiteracy and the alcoholism and some of the schools that, that barely keep up. And while the politicians may not say all that much about the cities anymore these days, God does. Because from any study at all of the Scriptures, we can see that God cares about cities and the people within them. Whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah, or whether it's Nineveh, or whether it's Jerusalem, or wherever. He cares about those people. He cares about the crime, the lawlessness. And He sends people to minister to these cities, just like He sent Jonah to Nineveh, just like he sent his son Jesus Christ, who as we read about him in the Gospels, we can see that he traveled to at least 18 cities that are named in the Gospels, but some of those 18 are way out at the far end of the reaches of where he traveled, like Caesarea Philippi and Tyre and Sidon, which means he had to go through a lot of other cities that are not named in the Gospels to arrive at those particular cities. And when you figure that he, he walked pretty much everywhere he went, it's amazing the number of cities that Jesus was in during his ministry in just three years. And when God sent Paul to be a missionary to the Gentiles, what did Paul do? Did he stay out in the wilderness? No, he travels to every major city. We can read about it in the book of Acts. The leading cities of the day, Corinth and, and Ephesus, Athens, Philippi, even Rome itself. And as we're talking about God's affinity for cities, we also have to remember that God's vision of the Messianic community involves a city, a refashioned, a remade Jerusalem. We see that in Isaiah 65 in the Old Testament. We see that elaborated upon in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. But the Isaiah passage, we can see some of the characteristics of that new city. We see things like happiness and fulfillment and joy. No more will babies die 
or the old not live until the end of their days. There will be enough housing to go around and plenty of food. The people will not work in vain for their little ones and the city will not know what violence is. Don't you want to live in a place like that? Of course, that's a picture of God's new world that He's promised but not yet fulfilled. But even though it's not yet fulfilled, we still find ourselves as a congregation in the midst of this city. How are we to live in the meantime? What are we to do? Do we lock ourselves inside and and stay safe? Do we minister to those only like us? Or are we supposed to get used to all of the violence and filth and spiritual ignorance around us? Are we supposed to do something? These are the types of questions that we began to ask in earnest as a congregation more than two years ago when we began our revitalization process and put those eight prayer teams together praying for the power of God's Holy Spirit to come upon the life of this church and show us what it is we're supposed to do. And there's a reason we have to consistently do this type of self-evaluation. And I'll talk about this reason by way of a book. Fifteen or twenty years ago, there was a book that stayed on the bestseller list for a while called Oldest Living Confederate Widow Tells All. A hundred-year-old Civil War widow shared with the interviewer the wisdom or much of the wisdom that she had gained during her years. And at one point, she talks about the danger in getting used to evil. She states how soon the terrible becomes routine. We've all got this dangerous built-in talent for turning horrors into error. After all, she says, that's partly how you get anything done, especially a chore that's dreadful. You turn it into a routine. And she talks there in that section of the book about the Nazis in Germany during World War II who worked at those uh, concentration camps and how they were gassing thousands of people and they turned it into a routine. That's how they lived with it. They got up and they ate breakfast and they went to work, and they came home, and they ate dinner, and they slept, and they got up and did it all over again. And she ends that section of the book by saying, we have to be real careful to what we get used to. Does that ever happen to you? Do you get used to the wrong things? I know I do. What about laziness? Or what about procrastination? Or what about mediocrity in our spiritual lives? What about a lack of compassion? Or selfishness? Isn't that some of what Paul's getting at here in our text? When he says that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And look at how Paul describes those in the world in verses 18 and 19. They are darkened in their understanding, 
alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous, Paul says. I wonder, are you callous? Am I? There's so much need around us. Do we, do we become callous to what we see and experience in our daily lives? Remember, we have to be careful to what we get used to because according to Paul, we did not learn those things in Jesus Christ. No, instead, we're, we're told to put off our old nature like we would take off a coat and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and put on the new nature, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's not that we have a hand in our salvation. That's not what Paul's talking about here. That's not his intent with these words. Obviously, God, through His Holy Spirit, calls us to Himself and saves us by grace through faith. Paul clearly teaches that earlier in this book in Ephesians 2, just like he teaches it in Romans 3, 4, and 5. But the point is, if there's no transformation in our lives, then there's no salvation. Paul's not talking about the point at which we're justified, that one-time act whereby God grants us righteous through all that Christ has done for us. He's talking about how we live each day, day in and day out, day after day after day after day. How do we really live? Do we put off the old and put on the new? Is God ruling our life today or is self. In this sense, living the converted life is a process, as the present tense of verse 23 makes clear. This renewing of our minds, this putting off and putting on the new is the pattern by which we're called to live each day. We should seek to live with our minds shaped by Jesus and His example and not, not the world and not the desires of self. You see what's happening here? God's ultimate promise and His new world are yet to be fulfilled, but in the meantime, He's called you and me to be new. Just like that Jerusalem will one day be new, we're called to be new right now. That is to be righteous to be holy, to be kind and compassionate and to live with a servant's heart in the midst of the worldliness around us. And in other words, to be new even though everywhere you go out there you're going to see old. So how does this new life look within the context of the church? As we individually put off the old and put on the new every day, what does that mean for the life of this congregation? And what does that mean for those living out there in this city to which we belong? Some of you know and have heard Tom Long preach. He grew up in the Dorville ARP church. I was the pastor to his mother and father for eight years. He uh, 
has pastored a church in his career. He's taught at Erskine Theological Seminary. He's taught at Columbia Theological Seminary. He's taught at Princeton Seminary. He ran the Presbyterian Publishing House for some time, and now he's kind of come full circle and is back teaching worship and preaching at the Candler School of Theology in Atlanta, which is tied to Emory University. And he tells the story that while he was at Princeton, one day during the Christmas season, he took his children into New York City for a Christmas shopping trip. And as they were walking along in not the best section of town because of where they had to park, there was a, a street preacher quoting Scripture and, and hurling biblical admonitions at the crowd through a battery-powered megaphone. And Tom is quick to say that, that while he didn't really prefer this person's style, that uh, he, he stopped and noticed because as a professor of homiletics, he thought this guy has a text. He has a good text. And as Tom puts it in his own disorganized way, he was trying to communicate to that in, disinterested crowd of New Yorkers the message that was burning in his heart, for it was Christmas. And his text was, The Word was made flesh and dwells among us, filled with grace and truth. Now, why tell you that story? I tell you that story to say you're not going to find me preaching on the street. You know, that's not the way I think we're called to do ministry around here. But that's not to say that's a bad way either. It's just not a way we're going to do it here. But you see, that street preacher, he had a vision. And with all the resources at his disposal, limited though they were, he was doing his best to bear witness to God Almighty through the gift of his Son, who is grace and truth. He was bearing witness there on the corner of 42nd and Broadway in the city of New York. While we will minister in a different way, our agenda is much the same. To bear witness to God and all that He has done through Jesus Christ through the vision that God has given us. But what is that vision? It's right there in your bulletin, printed practically every Sunday on the second page above the calendar items in bold print where it says inspired by the love of Christ and enabled by the Holy Spirit we serve God through worship education and fellowship that we may proclaim His grace and share His love in the world now I want you to look at those words a minute and think about them a minute in other words motivated by the love that Jesus Christ has shown us by yielding up his own body on the cross for our sins so that his love compels us, like Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5, and empowered by the Holy Spirit who gives us the call to ministry, who gives us this message of reconciliation so that we become ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We serve God through the avenues of worship 
that is worship, keying on the vertical relationship between God and His people, but we also serve through the avenues of education and fellowship, horizontal relationships among one another and among those out in the community of which we're a part in order that we may proclaim what? The grace of God in Jesus Christ and share His love in the world in all of that old that's out there. And as we've learned in our revitalization process, we do these things, worship, education, fellowship, through the matrix of outreach, evangelism, and discipleship. In other words, we seek to make sure that our worship services, our worship events have elements of outreach, evangelism, and discipleship in them. And the same with our educational endeavors and the same with our our fellowship events. You might find it interesting to notice that our three impact ministries we've identified through revitalization follow or touch on these three avenues of our vision. We can think of just joy as primarily worship. Though there are also times when evangelism and discipleship is taking place under that umbrella of just joy ministry. We think of our preschool as primarily educational, but there are times, as as Heather, our director, will tell you, we're in here worshiping on a Wednesday morning and we're singing songs of praise to God. And there are times of, of discipleship as well. And athletics as fellowship. But other things can go on within the life of that ministry as well. But within all of those ministries, we have opportunities for outreach, evangelism, and discipleship. Now, what I want you to understand is these aren't just academic issues that some special vision team or committee, that they're the only ones that need to talk about this. These are actual ways in which God, through His Holy Spirit, is making a difference in the lives of people just like you and me and in the lives of people out there in our community who've never heard the good news of God's love unto us in Christ. At times in our past, we haven't always been as focused on those outside of the church as we should have been. But as that Civil War widow reminds us, we have to be real careful what we get used to. The Holy Spirit has been leading us to look outward, to see needs around us and make a difference. Or as Paul puts it in our text, to take off the old nature and to put on the new. And may God bless us to that end in the days to come, to His honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.